Thank you for listening to Ivy Podcast, where we feature weekly leadership conversations with thought leaders and industry experts. Now, here is your host, John Karsibayev. Hi, John. Um, good to be here. My name is Ajay Agarwal. I'm a partner with Bain Capital Ventures. Ajay, thanks so much for making time to join us on the Abby Podcast. Very excited about the conversation. Dive in a little bit further about what you're currently building and doing with Bain Capital. But before we do that, give us a thumbnail version of your career prior to that. Uh, yeah, so, you know, I... Um... I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My my parents were immigrants, um, and I, I moved there when I was a year old. Um, you know, ended up going to college on the West Coast at Stanford. I was a major. I majored in electrical engineering. Uh, my sophomore year, I met a classmate um, named Joe Limot, who was starting a company um, selling uh, CRM software to startups up and down El Camino. And I decided to join him and build that business. We built that to about a million in revenue. He then dropped out uh, to start a second company. I, uh, uh, much to the happiness of my immigrant family, did not drop out and got my degree. Um, and a few years later, I, I did a few years in consulting and, and so forth. And then I rejoined Joe at his second company, which was called Trilogy Software, as employee 18. And Trilogy was building business software to help uh, companies that were selling complex products um, have a software tool to help them configure price quote uh, those products. Uh, a space today called CPQ. Uh, I initially ran product uh, and then over time ran product and go to market. And that business scaled uh, to $300 million in revenue during uh, the eight years I was there uh, down in Austin, Texas. Um, you know, Joe's an incredible founder and entrepreneur and uh, it was uh, an, an amazing journey. And then, you know, from there, I joined BCV, Bank Capital Ventures. Um, you know, we are an early stage and growth stage technology uh, venture fund. I focus primarily on early stage software companies, business software companies, um, and have had the pleasure of working with an amazing uh, group of founders and companies, companies such as Kiva Systems, you know, which automated e-commerce warehouses, now part of Amazon, Companies like SendGrid, Gainsight, and Clary, um, you know, uh, classic parts of you know the core sales and marketing and, and customer success stack, um, and uh, businesses like Bloomreach and ShipBob uh, that are bringing cloud software to uh, you know the growing e-commerce space. So uh, that's a that's a bit about me, and excited to get into the discussion. Well, what a journey and really appreciate you sharing some of the backgrounds and the personal story behind this. So going from you've you've been part of a few startups as an operator, as co-founder, and then the transition onto the venture capital side, the, you know, to the dark side. Uh, tell us a little bit more about that process. How did that come about as you're operating, leading the organization? And then you've obviously had a lot of success there. But then making that transition or the overall decision making go into the investment side. Tell us a little bit more about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, when I when I left Trilogy, I wasn't necessarily looking to be an investor. Um, you know, the the opportunity with Bain Capital Ventures came about a little bit uh, serendipitously, and and 
you know, I have to say that the first few years uh, making that tr transition was difficult. Um, you know, uh, when you're you know in a startup, um, you're making decisions every day. You're you feel like you're moving the ball forward uh, every day. You're you're part of a team. You you really can't accomplish anything by yourself. It's it's all a, a very much a team effort. Um, and so the the sense of fulfillment. Uh, the progress, the results, um, you know, are those cycle times are very short in nature. You know, you, you launch a product and then you can see if the product's working and are you selling it and, and are customers loving it? You know, the venture industry, what, what I learned when I got here is the time horizons are stretched out pretty dramatically. You know, you might meet 500, 1,000 founders in a given year, but invest in two or three Um uh, and so most days, you know, are fun and interesting and, and you're meeting amazing people, but you don't necessarily feel like you have any tangible results that you can point to. And then when you invest in the company, that's the start of, you know, what can be a seven, 10 year journey. Um, and oftentimes, you know, you don't really know uh, if this company is going to be one of those special outlier companies till many years down the road. And so the cycles, uh, the patterns, the you know, sense of feeling like you've delivered results, just take a long, long time uh, relative to uh, the operating world. And so, I think that getting adjusted to that was um, it was difficult. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. That's definitely an interesting perspective on making that transition. But at the same time, just that experience alone as a founder operator, I would imagine that comes in super useful, especially when you're trying to build those relationships with the prospective founders that you're considering of investing in. Uh, so there's probably a lot of that relevance in, in terms of you've been there, you've done that versus just somebody who's coming as a traditional investor, so to say. Um, yeah, I mean, sorry, go ahead, John. No, I was just going to take that a little bit further from a standpoint of just how has your investment, personal investment thesis evolved as you first started uh, when you made the first transition as a founder operator till now, little bit more of an experienced, uh, you know, investor. Tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, what are some of the things that you you very passionate about when you make those investments? Yeah, I think in some ways, you know, the world's changed so much, you know, over the course of the last, you know, two decades, you know, there's been so much technology disruption. But I think, you know, some of the core fundamentals around, um, you know, how I think about investing and, and, and startup building have remained the same. You know, one of the things I learned at Trilogy was um, the importance of, you know, hiring great people. We, we were renowned for our college recruiting process. We hired, um, you know, at our peak, you know, three to 400 um, students right out of undergrad to come work for us. Um, and the process of, of hiring and, and, and judging talent and onboarding people um, I, I think was world-class. And, and so I think I've taken those lessons into this job because at, at the end of the day, you know, especially for me as a seed and series A investor, what matters the most is the founders and that founding team. And, and, you know, oftentimes at seed stage, the actual idea evolves quite a bit. Um, you know, the markets that they're going after can be very dynamic. You don't know how things are going to play out. Um, but you can learn a lot about the founding team and, and, for me, it really is that conviction after spending time with the founder that 
we collectively want to go on this 10 year journey together. And um, it really is a journey. Um, you know, there's so many ups and downs, even, even the best companies I've been a part of, there've been, you know, dark days and stressful moments. Um, and I think having a relationship with a founder in both directions where, um, you know, there's a level of trust, there's transparency, um, you know, there's um, hu humility on both sides. I think that's critical. Um, you know, we're certainly in an environment now where these funding rounds are happening, you know, in hours and days and, 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 and so forth. But I still think having an opportunity, if you're a founder to spend time with, you know, a prospective investor outside of your fundraise process in advance of your fundraise process to figure out who that partner is going to be, I think is, is so critical. So I, I think for me, that has, has, you know, been the, the foundation for how I think about investing in, you know, 20 years in, it's, it's still the foundation and by far the most important thing. Those are very interesting points. And as a, you know, as a, as a founder operator myself, serial entrepreneur, I've been on the angel investing side for quite a few years. And when I first started in that, I was just taking that experience when I was fundraising for my own startups and just basically observing how other prospective investors or the VCs were behaving or the types of questions they were asking. And that really kind of translated to me formulating my own investment thesis or my own discipline, so to say, because I put a lot of emphasis on that so that then I don't just chase every other trend that's that's out there, that I stay in my lane, that's, you know, especially at the stage where I've been able to invest in extremely early stage, probably even way before <laughs> uh, stage that you play in being that probably one of the first lines on the cap table. Um, those conversations with founders become of utmost importance because I want to be a friend to a founder, not a parent, and be be able that be that mirror so that when things go wrong, uh, and also also what you've talked about that long term journey. A lot of times there's that misconception that you know we see in the media all these great success stories, but a lot of times it's seven to ten year journey, like like you said, and. Is this the type of founder I can get in trouble with together, you know, down the line for me? That's, right. that's exciting, which leads me to the further point uh, in terms of some of the evaluation frameworks that you may you may utilize these days or what has evolved through the through the journey when it comes to evaluating the founders, because that's the first, you know, you meet and at the stage you're investing probably that's one of the main decision making criteria in terms of who the founding team is and what they're all about. Can you speak a little bit more about that process and what do you look for? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think what we look for, um, you know, first and foremost is, um, you know, uh, a big vision. You know, we're, we're you know, what we do and, and where we're focused at Bain Capital Ventures is, is we're looking to fund the next generation of some of the most disruptive technology companies that are going to be built. And, and so it, it really does start with, you know, what is that vision and, and why is it compelling? Why is this particular space going to be reinvented or, or created from scratch? Um, and what we find, I think, with the best founders is they, they're able to articulate what the future is going to look like, um, but they have the detailed uh you know, set of points to convince you that their vision is right. Um, you know, many times you can meet a founder with an incredibly compelling vision, but as you drill into it a little bit, um, 
you know, it, it, it feels you know, rather thin. And, and I think our best founders, the ones we get excited about, they've got that vision, they've got that vision, you know, that, that view as to what the future is going to look like. But as you drill into it, you know, their depth is, is, is incredibly strong. I remember, you know, when, when I first met Mick Mounts, who's the founder of Kiva Systems, and, and Kiva was a pioneer, um, you know, in the sense that, you know, it was a hardware, software, robotic system to, you know, revolutionize e-commerce warehouses. And, and Mick was a domain expert. He'd been at uh, WebVan. He'd seen how expensive it is to have human beings individually pick, you know, uh, items and put them into a box or a tote. And he, you know, articulated this incredible vision of, of Kiva. And, and, and he had this brilliant insight, which was in a typical Amazon warehouse, 90% of the time a worker spending is walking to the shelf, you know, because you have a million square feet, you have 10 million products. And so those workers are, are, are literally walking miles. And his insight was instead of having the worker go to the shelf, let me create a system where the shelf comes to the worker. And so if you can eliminate that 80, 90% of time that's travel, you can now optimize that worker's time on actually just picking the item and putting in the tote. But what was amazing about Mick was incredible vision. You can articulate the ROI, why this needed to happen, the why now, you know, as, as e-commerce, this was back, you know, in the, in, in, you know, a few years after the dot-com bubble, why e-commerce was rising, but you could also have a detailed discussion with Mick, you know, as to why the robot he built was, I'm going to forget the number, but 32 inches in length, you know, and he could explain to you that 32 inches was the, the exactly one inch bigger than was required to be able to take a standard carton of items and stick it onto one of his shelves. And 32 inches had a certain turning radius that allowed you to pack a certain density in the warehouse. And so that ability to go from 50,000 feet the vision that he could articulate to the CEO of Staples all the way down to you know, him understanding why the robot needed to be a certain width. That's, that's what we see in, in, in the best founders. That it's, it is incredible range, frankly, to go you know, that whole span. Yeah, that's a great example uh, as far as what to look for in a founder. And we do a lot of surveys with our listeners, uh, polls in terms of who's coming on the show and what types of questions to ask. And one of the questions that was the most kind of requested through our audience was uh, asking you in terms of your anti-portfolio, meaning what are some of the investment misses that you had experienced that you probably regretted down the road? And Speak a little bit further in terms of if and how that impacted your investment strategy or the thesis in general, and what were some of the lessons learned out of that? Well, you know, um, there there uh, there are many, um, and it's the nature of this business that um, you know we we get it wrong all the time. Um, and yes, you know, I think it's it's certainly an exercise we go through uh, to take those lessons learned. Um, you know, I. We we had an opportunity, um, you know, back in um, I think this must be now 2011 2012 um, to be part of a seed round uh, at what became Pinterest, um, 
And, um, you know, I and, and a couple of colleagues had a meeting with, um, you know, the founders and we were blown away. I mean, the vision was phenomenal, um, you know, and uh, given our experience in e-commerce, um, you know, it, it really resonated with us. But at the time, you know, we were very focused on only doing series A's. Um, and, um, and, and so we ended up, and, and who knows if we had decided to pursue it, if we would have won or not, but, but we ended up bowing out because it was a seed and not a series A. And, and, you know, my, my lesson around, and, and now obviously today we go seed all the way through growth. And, um, but my lesson learned on that is if, if you meet a founder and that founder is incredible, and for some reason, the nature of that investment may not fit, you know, our particular model is to, is to push on it and figure out, is there a way we can get involved here? Um, and I think I, I was too quick at the time to say, we don't do seeds, let's move on, um, as opposed to this founder is amazing. Um, you know, this opportunity makes a lot of sense. Let's find a way to, to do it. You know, even though it may not be, you know, strictly down our, you know, our, our core model. Now, again, obviously today we do seeds and Series A's, and you know, eighty-eight percent of our investments over the last twelve months have been seed and Series A. So, you know, our firm has evolved dramatically since then. But you know, there's going to be the next thing that may feel, um, you know, out of our comfort zone or a little bit, um, you know, different. And then I think our mindset, and certainly my mindset, is very different, which is. It's a great founder. Let's find a way to get involved. Right. No, that's very interesting. That's a, that's a great example. And thank you for sharing that. Uh, earlier on, you've mentioned um, some strengths around recruiting um, and being able to surround yourself with, with the top performers. Um, in terms of helping your portfolio companies or the founders that you work with in talent acquisition space, in, especially in this current market, extremely competitive when it comes to you know finding, sourcing, recruiting the best people, especially in technology. We all know how difficult that is. And then another layer, the war on retention is also becoming real. How do you think about that? What are the conversations you're having with your founders in terms of being able to help recruit and build the teams around with, you know, to be able to deliver on that vision that they're trying to build? Yeah, I mean, I think the 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 first part of it, and and really the upstream part of it that you have to start with is is the vision and the culture. And um, if you don't have a compelling vision and you don't have a strong culture, you can use every tactic in the book around talent, and it's going to be hard. Um, and so we encourage companies at the seed stage to really be intentional about what their culture is, what they want it to be, you know, intentional uh, when they bring employees on to make sure those new employees are bought in uh, to the vision and the culture. And I think it's incredibly important, especially in today's world, where increasingly the vast majority of our companies and their employees are remote in some way, shape or form. So you don't have the benefit of everyone being together and the camaraderie that comes from you know, physical co-location. And even for the companies that are physically co-located in this environment, the pandemic, you don't have that. And so I think it really starts with vision and culture and be able to communicate that in a world where your employees are distributed. I think step two is for your company figuring out, is there some scalable approach you can take that 
where you can go deep, where you can be really good at it. In our case, it was college recruiting. You know, we said, you know, this is a trilogy. We said college recruiting is going to be our scalable way of hiring people. It won't be the exclusive way, but it's going to be the thing that we are better at than anyone else on the planet. And, and so we built an entire competency around being at these colleges, identifying, you know, uh, you know we, we got to know the TAs at Stanford who taught CS106A and, and ha- had them tell us who the, you know, their favorite five or 10 students were. And, and you know, we did the equivalent at every single, you know, top CS uh, university in Canada and, and the US. And, but then we also had to think about the fact that since we were hiring straight from college, we needed more extensive training program when they got to, to Trilogy. But it was really an end-to-end system that, that worked incredibly well and allowed us to scale the business. And so I think, you know, for, for each founder, you've got to figure out what is your angle. Is it we're going to you know, pick a certain geo that may be less, um, you know, uh, less popular, um, you know, and, and really go deep there and, um, and, and build that as a competency. Um, you know, uh, there, there's so, or, or maybe it's a certain set, you know, certain networks that are maybe um, underpenetrated um, that we're going to try and tap into. And, and so I think a lot of companies just try and do the standard playbook that everyone else is doing and they spread themselves thin. They try 18 different tactics. And I think the better way is to pick one or two things, go deep and see if you can, you know, uh, utilize tactics that are somewhat unique, um, you know, relative, uh, relative to the field. To double click on that in terms of recruiting for your own company, for your own teams at Bain Capital, um, what do you look for when you interview or look at candidates and more specifically around, not, not so much around the questions that you ask, but when you hear responses from the potential candidates that's going to join your team, what do you pay attention to? What are some of the flags that really, you know, light bulbs go off in your head that makes you think that, yeah, this is the type of person that will succeed here because the reason I ask is I've been on on all sides of the equation when it comes to interviewing and I noticed that a lot of interviews are focused too much on what are the weaknesses that we can tolerate in that particular candidate versus this is the strength that's missing on our team and is that candidate able to fulfill that speak a little bit more from that perspective for your own teams yeah, I think the thing that, you know, when I interview someone that join our team, whether that's as, you know, a, a young investor or a more senior investor, um, the thing I look for is, do they love technology? I mean, are, are they really passionate about it? Because at the end of the day, we're, we're helping founders build companies where we're, our founders, by definition, are immersed in technology and love technology. And so if you come into this, you know, this job and view it as a financial job, um, you're not going to be successful. Um, Certainly not here at at BCV. Um, You know, so the folks that I get excited about are the ones that truly love technology. They love startups. They love founders. Um, And you can see that in, 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 you know, how they talk about it. You can see that, you know, their eyes light up. The, the examples they give, the, the stuff they do in their free time, um, you know, that is truly, you know, I think what matters. And, and I think for any company, I think that, le- that, that concept can be extended because, 
you know, you, you want employees that are passionate and 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 have that passion, whatever that passion is, align with whatever your mission is. And if you have that alignment, you know, the odds of success go way up. Certainly someone's got to be qualified and capable and so forth. But business is hard. Work is hard. Um, you know, uh, the world is competitive. Every industry, whether you're selling software or you're at a venture capital firm, is, you know, 100x competitive, more competitive today than it was, you know, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. And so you're not going to survive or thrive or get through the hard weeks unless you love what you do. And so that's the number one thing I look for, which is, is this person going to love what we do? Um, and I think too much, too, too much of interview, pro, too, you know, uh, of the process and the instincts of all of us can sometimes be focused on, is this person capable? Um, but I think that's only half the equation. So that that's, you know, what I look for, and what I care about. And certainly when I meet someone with those characteristics, you know, I, I, I walk out so excited, you know, and, um, and, and that's the feeling you want. Right. Absolutely. And those are definitely great points you're making in terms of the framework for evaluating potential candidates. Uh, I'd love to get a sneak peek into Ajay's crystal ball in terms of the trends that you're personally excited about to what's coming next. I mean, we've seen all kinds of new trends and, you know, things pop up through the past couple of years as we all have to shift into the fully virtual environments. What are some of the things that you're personally excited about? What's coming next? Whether, you know, doesn't necessarily have to be from investment standpoint, but just overall some of the trends that you may be personally following. Well, I think what's interesting and what I've observed over the course of my venture career is that the, the oftentimes the trends that venture uh, capitalists and, and the pundits get excited about are often right, but, they're, but, but they take a few years to play out. And so the trends that I'm excited about are not new trends, but I think we're still in the early innings of them playing out. And I think there's so much more innovation yet to happen around these trends. And when I look back, a lot of the most interesting companies in the prior trends didn't happen right at the outside outside of the trend, it was a few years in uh, to the trend where, you know, some of the, the, the biggest companies get built. And, and for me, one of the biggest one is this idea of remote work and, and, and hybrid work, because we, we still don't know what the steady state's going to be. We're still in the pandemic. You know, we don't know what the world's going to look like, you know, when this virus goes away and, and we return to some form of normalcy. Certainly a lot of companies are remote first. But I think all the tooling required to run a company that's remote, most of it is still not in place. Yes, certain categories like remote payroll and, and, and benefits and things like that, I think you know, many companies have, have um, you know, exploited that opportunity uh, massively, you know, virtual events and conferences, we've seen some companies really take off. But I think the majority of the tooling around collaboration, communication, onboarding, training, um, you know, are, are yet yet to be built. Um, and so I think that's an exciting trend. I think the second one, which again, this is not a new trend, but we're still in the early innings um, of this happening is the move to product-led growth. And, and you know, if I think about my days, 
you know, selling software, running go-to-market, you know, 25 years ago at Trilogy, you know, it was top-down sales. You know, you, you try to get to the CEO and convince them to spend $10 million. And now, you know, at least the startups we're funding, the majority are 100% bottom-up. You know, it's developer-led, it's API first, it's bottom-up, you know, it's land and expand, it's free trial um, with some kind of expansion, consumption, you know, uh, on the back end. And, and when you think about the stack that's been built around marketing automation, CRM, customer success, all those tools were built in a different world. You know, they were built in a world where most companies were sales led, where a salesperson, whether a BDR or an account executive, you know, was on the front lines of trying to penetrate an account. Now it's it's very different, and so we're we're, we're seeing a lot of startups emerge in this arena. Um, but again, I think the full picture is going to become clearer over the next few years. So it's a it's an incredibly exciting area where you know um, how do you even think about the record inside a CRM? Historically, it was an opportunity record, but now what is an opportunity? You know, is it a user? Is it a team of users? Is it a department? Is it a company? You know, even these fundamental notions that have been true for 20 plus years are, are, are being called into question. So I think there's a lot of opportunity here and, and we're seeing, um, you know, a tremendous amount of innovation uh, happening in this space. Definitely very exciting observations, and we've been we've been living in this very interesting world with with so much unclarity and you know unpredictability in terms of what's coming next. So it's always interesting to hear different perspectives on as far as what's coming next. So I appreciate you sharing okay. that. Yeah, absolutely. Anytime. In terms of um, just moving on to the last segment, yeah. Rapid Fire, um, your personal, your content diet, what does what that looking like? What do you consume on a daily basis just to keep yourself educated, informed, ahead of the curve? Um, I'm just always fascinated with strategies to keep your mind, um, you know, isolated at the same time being very selected because with so much information being thrown at us through all these mediums. How do you think about that? What are the sources that you consume? Yeah, I mean, in terms of what I consume, um, you know, work-wise, I mean, I think it's the standard stuff, you know, um, Twitter, you know, and, and LinkedIn are probably, you know, the, the most um, uh, common sources that I use um, to consume, you know, content related to technology and startups. Um, but frankly, the most interesting content I get from a work standpoint is, is, is talking to founders, you know? And so at some level, all of that stuff, you know, on social media is interesting, uh, but it's diminishing returns and, and, and a lot of it's noise, but talking to founders, you know, the one, the, the people who are closest to, you know, the bleeding edge of innovation, the ones that are, are in front of customers all day long and prospects, that's where I learn the most and where I, I try and spend the most time. Outside of the work stuff, I do you know, read a lot. I, I read a lot of fiction and nonfiction that has nothing to do um, with technology. And, and that's really just a way to, you know, feed different part of the brain, turn off the brain, you know, and I think you recharge mentally, you know, uh, and um, so I love it. I enjoy it. You know, 
what I find about fiction so interesting is that, you know, in, in many, you know, the world changed over, over, over the last 5,000 years. Um, so much history has happened, but human nature, you know, uh, and aspects of human nature are very fundamental. Uh, and you see that over and over, both in history uh, and in fiction. Um, and, um, you know, and I think that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's fascinating, um, to see, uh, many of those patterns. So I enjoy it. Uh, it's a, it's a passion of mine in addition to rooting my, my Steelers on in, in, uh, you know, every, every fall, which, you know, that alone creates its own mental stress. So, um, that, that's what I enjoy. That's exciting. We could probably have another whole episode dedicated to yeah, that. Yeah, definitely. Um, Last but not least, is there is there a book that you know you've recently read that was just you know you absolutely loved, or is there a book that you always recommend to others, and why is that? Um, you know my 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 best uh, my favorite book um, around innovation is an old one, but a classic, which is you know called Soul of a New Machine, uh, which is a story about uh, innovation, a small group of innovators inside data general, uh, which was, uh, old, you know, computer, computer company way back when, uh, in the Northeast. And it's, it's a classic. It's, it's one of the best books about technology and innovation, uh, that, uh, I've ever read and it's still relevant and current. Um, and then, you know, I think the other classic that's a must read for everybody is, um, the innovators dilemma by Clay Christensen. Um, and you know it, it it's the level of uh, depth that he goes into on um, the history of uh, you know the steel industry and the history of the the computer storage industry and the same pattern of innovation disruption happening uh, and you see this in in the world I invest in in software you see these categories get built you know and and we saw this with the shift from on prem to the cloud these giant companies that got built non-prem and they couldn't make the transition to the cloud, even though it became known and, and, and understood, um, you know, the, the, the incumbents are always too late. And so for a venture capitalist and certainly for a founder, um, if you're going up against a big incumbent and it seems daunting, uh, read the innovator's dilemma and that'll give you, that'll give you faith that there's a path to victory and uh, it can be done and it has been done. It's, and it's, it's happening over and over again. And even the incumbents today that seem um, insurmountable uh, in terms of their strength and scope, it, it, it's gonna happen to them too. It, it's, it's inevitable. So that's what I love so much. It's, it's a cycle of destruction and, and, and rebuilding and innovation. Uh, and that is the groundwork for the next generation of founders that we're looking to fund and back and partner with over the course of the next 10 years. So could, couldn't be more excited. Those are great recommendations. And for our listeners, we'll make those titles available in show notes. Ajay, I can't thank you enough for your time today. It was a very short and insightful conversation. I personally learned quite a bit. What I love doing with all the guests on the Ivy Podcast is do a follow-up recording in about a year where we revisit a conversation from a year ago and, and basically see if everything we've discussed still makes sense, still applies. So I definitely look forward to doing that with you as well. We'll, we'll love it. Good, good to see you. Thanks for having me on. And uh, you're all, always fun. So uh, enjoy the... Uh the the warm weather down south <laughs> thanks so much 
Thank you for listening to the Ivy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to our RSS feed on ivypodcast.com and all major podcasting platforms like Spotify and iTunes. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes.